Gracious Father, take that which is foolishness and place it on deaf ears. May that which your Holy Spirit wants to speak to us about today fall on quickened ears and quickened hearts. Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, some for some of you. Oh, that was a long bend. Valentine's Day is less than a week away, or it's a little over a week away. Isn't that amazing? For all you lovers and others out there, yeah. For those of you, you know, Valentine's Day, traditionally we set it aside to express one's friendship and love to each other. For those of you who desire to express your uh, affection with words, may I suggest the following Valentine's Day poem found in a collection of English nursery rhymes from 1784. May I even be bolder to suggest that our resident English scholar, Mr. Douglas Lewis, might use these words to his beloved in about a week. The rose is red. The violet's blue, the honey's sweet, and so are you. Thou art my love, and I am thine. I drew thee to my valentine. The lot was cast, and then I drew. And fortune said, it should be you. Oh, don't you think that would be fitting for Douglas Lewis to say to Mrs. on, you know? Yeah, I think so. Okay, all right. Like it or hate it, social media has done something with the definition of friendship over the course of the last bunch of years. It's redefined it. Ten years ago, I don't think we would have called up our friends and told them what we would have had for breakfast, but now we post it on Facebook. Craig Groeschel redefined, used Proverbs 24, 18, or 18.24 rather, to, to uh, redefine friendship with the Facebook version of that verse. It goes like this, a friend is someone you may or may not know well who accepts your friend request on Facebook. This person is bound to like and comment on your post to make you feel good about yourself. Isn't that true? Yeah. A British publication once offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. Among thousands of answers, the winning entry read, and I love this one, a friend is the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. Isn't that good? Eugene Peterson, author and writer, author of the message <coughs> translation, or paraphrase, says this, friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. <clears throat> it's every bit, <clears throat> excuse me, as significant as prayer and fasting. 
like the sacramental use of water and bread and wine, friendship takes what's common in human experience and turns it into something holy. Underlying the politics of God and nations lies one of the profoundest human dramas in all of literature. It's a story not simply of a warrior and a prince, but a story of two men. Out of the narratives of 1 Samuel 18 through 20 comes a truly amazing story of enmity and hatred contrasted with love and friendship. In David and Do Jonathan, we see a, a friendship between men that is expressed in terms of a covenant that endures until death. You know, humanity lives in this seeming contrast between enmity and hatred and love and friendship. There's an ebb and flow of life that happens there. And more often than not, we find ourselves in conditions of enmity. We're criticized. We're teased. We're avoided. We're attacked. We're shot at. We're shot down. We're abandoned. We're cursed. We're hunted. We're snubbed. We're stabbed in the back. We're used as doormats. We're discouraged with false praise. This is our world. And yet, love, indeed, God's love, is fundamental to the world's existence. Love is the background stage to the stage where all of life is played out. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That's the basis of our understanding and interpretation of everything that happens around us. But like that John 3.16 poster in the end zone of a football game, it's soon lost in the game of life. The first murder attempt took place while David was making music for Saul. It was David's skill in music that brought him to Saul's attention in the first place. His music was a healing presence to Saul's black moods, his demonic visitations. And then one day, that healing turned to hate. And Saul threw a spear and muttered under his breath, I'll pin that David to the wall. But David ducked, twice in fact. Then it was cold-blooded, calculated assassination plots. First, David, uh, first promising David to marry his daughter Merib if David proved himself in battle. His plan was to put David on the front lines where the Philistines would eventually kill him. But David showed up alive and well after the battle, ready for the wedding, only to have Saul 
hurry off and marry Merib to some oaf named Adriel. Second, when Paul, when Saul rather, found out that his daughter Michal was in love with David, he plotted another attempt. Again, he promised David to marry Michal if he killed a hundred Philistines. And unassuming David went out and killed 200 Philistines. This time the marriage took place. But it didn't end there. Saul had hired his killers to stake out David's house with orders to kill him the first thing in the morning. Michal, finding out about the plot, Help David escape through the night, through a window. Escape in the night, through a window. And she put a dummy in his bed with a goat's hair head. Sort of sounds like me in the morning. In the morning, Michal told the ascending death squad that David was sick. And he couldn't come out. Oh, okay. And so the death squad went back to... Saul and said, he's sick, he can't come out and get murdered. And Saul fumed and raged. Bring him up to me in his bed so I can kill him. David was on the run, living in caves, seeking refuge and sustenance wherever he might find it. He was doing everything right. He killed Goliath. He ended the standoff with Israel's enemies. He brought healing to Saul's tortured soul. He was just what Israel needed. He was, in fact, just what Saul needed. You know, and, and he did it with, with modesty. He wasn't showing off, at least we think. But now he was in line for getting himself killed. It's always disorienting to be attacked, to be criticized, to be stabbed in the back when you're doing something good, when you're doing your very best and then you're being opposed. But I know for myself, I don't even welcome criticism and attacks when my actions are wrong. But I not perplexed by it. I, I expect if I do something wrong, I'm going to get called up on the carpet. But we don't expect it for doing right. I, for sure, nor possibly anyone here this morning, knows what it's like to be on the run for your life. I have no idea of the terror of Syrian refugees fleeing their war-torn homeland. I have no, I, I have very little emotional understanding of what it means for the Rohingya to be fleeing Myanmar into Bangladesh. I have no comprehension of the night terrors of children escaping with their families, now living as part of the 70 million displaced peoples in our world 
with half of them under the age of 18? I have no idea. How do I respond? As I was thinking about that, (laughs) as trivial as it is, I dare say that the closest we come to sympathizing with them might come from a temporary rush of adrenaline that we get when we're eluding an enemy when we play a video game. How banal. But we don't know the terror of running for our lives. But at another level, we experience the dilemma of distortion. Some of us deal with our past, abuse, neglect, hurtful decisions, bullying, friendships gone awry, habits out of control. Others deal with the present, family struggles, hurting friendships, the ever-present pressures of our workload, the pains of loneliness. Still others deal with the disorientation of the future. Who am I becoming? What's ahead for me? Where does God want me? None of us are exempt from this disorientation, this perplexity, this confusion. Read the Psalms. They're replete with David's responses to this disorientation. Interwoven throughout these six murderous plots we see in these chapters in 1 Samuel is an extraordinary friendship between Jonathan and David. In the middle of this chaos, David experienced a most unusual love in Jonathan's friendship. God knew that David needed an intimate friend to walk with him through the valley, through this valley. And Jonathan was just the shining example of a kindred spirit who shows us what we need when we're stressed. Standing standing in the shadows of the conversation between Saul and David as it's recorded in 1 Samuel 18 was the young man Jonathan. He was a warrior too. Read about it in the chapters that just precede. He was a conquering warrior. He had just seen and witnessed Goliath being killed. And he must have been deeply impressed by David's trust in God. For in verse 1, 1 Samuel 18, it says that after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. I love the way that King James puts it. Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David, an intimate friendship. When we face disorienting times, what we need is an intimate friend who, first of all, is willing to sacrifice. In verse 4, we see that Jonathan took off the robe that he's wearing, along with, and, and he gave it to David, along with his tunic. 
and his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan wanted to give to David something that was meaningful to Jonathan, but also very helpful to David. Friends do that. They're not stingy with their possessions or their time. Later, Jonathan says to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. That's the word of an intimate friend. No scorekeeping, no, if you, no, none of this. If you do this, then I'll do that. The attitude of Jonathan, who, by the way, was the crown prince, was remarkable and exhibits the unselfishness of his character and his personality. Unselfishness carried the day. The intimate friend that Jonathan was to David meant that he was a loyal defender before others. A friend who wouldn't talk against you when you're not around. It says in chapter 19, verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul. Here was this crown prince, the mighty, the might have been heir to the throne. No envy, no jealousy, no pettiness. Wow. An intimate friend gives us freedom to be ourselves. On what was their seemingly last meeting, although it wasn't, but what they probably understood to be their last meeting. It says in chapter 20, verse 41, that David got up from the south side of the stone. That's where he was hiding. So he got up from the south side of the stone, and he bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other, and they wept together. But David wept the most. When your heart is broken, you can bleed all over a friend, and they'll understand they won't confront you in your misery and tell you to smarten up. If a friend is weeping, <laughs> you let them weep. If a friend is complaining, you listen. You don't bail out. You're right there with you. You can be yourself no matter what you look like. An intimate friend is a source of encouragement. In the very last meeting, as recorded in chapter 23, it says that while David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And so Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. That's the kind of friend to have. David is at the lowest moment, and Jonathan puts courage into his soul. Jonathan's first three words are, don't be afraid. David, you're not alone in this. I'm here with you, no matter what.
Someone has said that loneliness is the most desperate of all English words. In an article about a week and a half in the Globe, a week and a half ago in the Globe and Mail, it talked about the title was "Why is Loneliness So Toxic?" And it talked about the equating of loneliness. with such diseases and illnesses as cancer. The effect of loneliness upon our health, our very physical being, is huge. And the ironic thing is that we can be very lonely with a lot of people around us. As Jonathan shows us what we need in an intimate friend, David shows us what we need in order to receive friendship. There's a couple of things. Four times in chapter 18, it mentions that David prospered in all his ways, for, uh, in, prospered in all his ways because the Lord was with him. It's an interesting word, this word prosper. The Hebrew word from which it derives is sakal, S-A-K-A-L, transliterated. And it means to act wisely, act prudently, to prosper. A good friend in receiving the friendship from another acts wisely and is trusted with the details that are mutual between them. When they speak, they speak with discretion. A wise friend is teachable. We never reach a level where we're above criticism or no longer need the input of others. Receiving friendship calls for us to be wise, but it also calls for us to be humble. David has been anointed king. Shouldn't he be doing all in his power to become what he's anointed to be? You would think so. After all, Saul was the one who tried to spear him and kill him. David had already won battles. And people were singing his praises. If he had wanted to, I think he could have led a civil war and probably won. But David said, chapter 18, verse 23, he says this, Do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. In order to receive friendship, we need humility. That very attitude allowed Jonathan's soul to be knit with David's. Can you imagine if David had taken on the challenge of becoming king in his own power, with his own bravado, with brashness? 
how that would have changed the trajectory of his whole life. But he was humble, receiving Jonathan's friendship as a man after God's own heart. David and Jonathan's relationship is cherished and intimate. In our voyeuristic age where everything is permitted and little is forgiven, intimacy is often scrutinized because of the presumption that it must have some kind of sexual content. Ancient societies had no anxieties like that. They freely drew on the joyous language of sensual love to describe friendship because love is the highest, most intense experience known to us. In the New Testament, when Jesus says that there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends, He raises the bar on friendship to something that's very noble and high. Your friend is the person you would die for. And because it exists for no other reason than itself, not to get, but to give, love is among the most cherished gifts of God who at creation came into the garden looking for the man and woman because he longed and was looking for friendship. It is not good for us to be alone, whether we are human or divine. So how can we define friendships? One thing that I found Ah, there we are. One thing that I found that has been helpful to me in explaining friendships is Robert Sternberg's triangular theory of love. There's three parts that make up this theory. They're found at the angles of this triangle. There's intimacy, passion, and commitment. Intimacy refers to the feelings of closeness, connectedness, and bondedness that warm warmth in the relationship. Passion refers to the drives that fulfill needs such as self-esteem, assistance, nurture, affiliation, belonging, and of course in the marital relationship. I bet you thought you'd never, I'd never say it. Sex. Commitment refers to one's commitment to maintain that love and friendship. These components are separable, but they work together. For instance, I once had an infatuation kind of, an infatuous kind of love, but it was for my grade three teacher, Miss Page, and she didn't have any kind of commitment with me at all, other than that she was my teacher. Sometimes we have romantic love. And Sternberg says that romantic love on your left deals with passion and intimacy, but it lacks commitment. I found these three things 
passion, intimacy, commitment are great talking points in any relationship. And so you sit down with your friend and you say, where are we when it comes to the passion in our friendship? Where are we when it comes to commitment? Where are we when it comes to intimacy? What does that mean for our relationship? Let me ask you today. Do you have a Jonathan friend in your life? Do you have a Jonathan whose heart has been knit to yours? If you do, praise God. And know that you've been wonderfully blessed. But perhaps even a more important question then, question to consider then, do you have that kind of a friend is this question. Are you that kind of a friend to another? Have you become Jonathan in the life of someone God has put in your life? Someone like David who needs a friend they can count on. At the heart of David and Jonathan's friendship is the question of faithfulness to Yahweh. Their friendship covenant was made in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The words of John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love amongst us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. May it be so with us. Amen. You are dismissed.